It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I tell you, I have been incredibly eager to chat with George Papadopoulos ever since this Durham report came out, but I actually wanted to make a bit of an effort to read as much of the Durham report as I could. Now, I did not read all 360 something pages of this uh, Durham report, but over the weekend, especially on Saturday with the rain, I did uh, make an effort to go through this. And I think you know kind of where I come from. I look at, I try to call him as I see him. Uh, I uh, don't really consider myself right wing or left wing, but I tried to look at this report as objectively as possible. And even though I voted for Donald Trump, if this was an investigation into, I don't know, uh, whatever, uh, uh, Benghazi, and it showed a similar degree of misconduct, I'd like to think I would be just as outraged. This report is absurd. It, it, the report itself is not absurd. The findings of this report are absurd. This report is, in my judgment, a an incredibly damning look at the FBI. Um, it, there is so much valuable information here including affirmations about bias and a lot of serious issues at FBI, at the FBI, what they were choosing to investigate, how they were choosing to investigate, what they were choosing to not investigate. So um, one of the people that was sort of a victim of the Justice Department before it was fashionable is George Papadopoulos. A lot of you might remember the name. He is an energy expert. He was a former member of the Foreign Policy Advisory Panel to Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, was prosecuted by Mueller. I think he got ultimately 16 days in prison, ultimately pardoned by President Trump. He's a best-selling author. His book, Deep State Target, How I Got Caught in the Crosshairs of the Plot to Bring Down President Trump, is an eye-opening look into what happens when you're on the receiving end of a uh, an electron microscope that's being conducted by the Justice Department. George Papadopoulos, thanks for staying up late with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, it, no, the pleasure is all mine. Now, George, your case was six years ago. You were front page news all over the place. 
a lot of people may not remember the details of your case, and you wrote about it in your book, so I don't necessarily want to go into it in too much detail now, but a lot of people are going to look at the fact that you pled guilty to a charge of making false statements to the FBI. There's a lot of people out there right now who I'm sure think you're still some sort of a Russian stooge, when the reality is I think I say a lot more pro-Russian things on the radio than you ever did. But just explain to folks who may not have read your book or followed your your case, if you weren't colluding with the Russians on this uh, presidential campaign, why would you have lied to the FBI? And if you didn't lie to the FBI, why would you plead guilty to a, a crime? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good. Uh, those are really good questions. So uh, first and foremost, um, the president himself has recently been indicted. His house was raided. His uh, campaign chairman uh, was sent to solitary confinement. His uh, current uh, accountant is serving time in Rikers Island, I believe. General Flynn, others, Paul, uh, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, what all of these individuals did not commit crimes. All of these individuals, just like myself, were the targets of an overzealous, politicized Department of Justice that was hell bent on assuring that they could put their finger on both not only the truth, but also the 2016 election. And as we saw with revelations coming out, the 2020 election with the suppression of the Hunter Biden story. So, the point of why I was forced to plead guilty is because when you're uh, designated to be one of a handful of fall guys by a weaponized federal apparatus that wanted to assure that President Trump would likely be impeached and removed with over with probably over a year into his administration, you don't have many options at that point. Uh, the entire media apparatus was uh, colluding with the FBI with this narrative that the president was a Russian stooge, that I was a Russian stooge, that we were all colluding. And uh, as you can imagine, with uh, 98 percent Democrat voters in Washington, D.C., I knew I would never get a fair trial. So I decided I'm going to lose the battle to win the war. And what do I mean by that? Winning the war eventually means getting the truth out. Immediately upon my name going public, I believe in October of 2017, a couple months uh, thereafter, my then girlfriend, now wife, started going on television. George Stephanopoulos, Hannity, Tucker Carlson. She started to say, there's a lot more to this story. This was a setup. People started to question things. Then uh, I think there was an investigation in the House led by Devin Nunes. He started to get information out there. That's when the Spygate narrative emerged. That's when President Trump finally went on offense. And that's when he saved his presidency. So that was a, a quick summary into what it feels sure. like to be in the crosshairs, but also to fight back as well. Yeah. And uh, if people want to hear the whole story in some detail, you you put it all out there in your book, Deep State Target, which I've read, which uh, even if people aren't conservative or Trump supporters, it's a really a fascinating look into how some of these cases get made and the pressure that there is when you're being investigated to plea. So just to be clear. You did not lie to the FBI, but this was a strategic decision on your part, and you knew that you would uh, be able to tell your story in the fullness of time and um, not have to spend a substantial amount of time in prison if you took the guilty plea route. Well, look, you know, it, it, it's impossible to lie about a non-crime, right? I mean, right. When, the, when the Department of Justice uh, invents evidence and fabricates evidence and sets people up and then goes to 
a federal court and a federal judge and says this X, Y, and Z is all real when they know they're lying to a federal court like Durham proved, then it's impossible for me to have lied. I mean, basically, I was uh, entrapped, uh, and I highly recommend uh, people to you know read the book and you can understand exactly how that entire process was laid out. But the same thing happened, you know, with others, including Roger Stone, where they convicted him of lying to Congress when he couldn't possibly lie about something that never existed. So it was a, a disturbing uh, strategy laid out by the DOJ to catch people in these very bizarre perjury traps at a chaotic time during the Trump administration. I had just been at the um, at the inauguration and then uh, I left to go back to Chicago, basically uh, to go visit family before I was expecting to go back to Washington, D.C., and I'm caught off guard at 8 in the morning with uh, two FBI agents at my house. You know, I didn't even ask to get a lawyer. I go to talk to them because I'm just, you know, a patriot. I love this country. I didn't do anything wrong. So I thought there's no way that the FBI is looking to set people up. They just want information about any national security issues that I was more than happy to oblige them. And then later you find out that they're texting one another, oh, we got this guy. We got him to say exactly what we wanted, Me, just like they did to Flynn with a, with a declassified struck text. Get them to lie. That's the whole point, And just screw over Trump. And that's unfortunately the situation why the FBI has lost so much um, uh, credibility in the face of the American public today. So there was a three years ago, four years ago, the Department of Justice Inspector General had a report that identified a lot of problems back then with the FBI probe. They said it was dysfunctional. They said it was rushed. But the inspector general, they said at the time that they denied that there was any evidence of political bias or that the department did not have reason to open the probe when it did. The Durham probe goes much further. Uh, They identified a lot of those same shortcomings that the Inspector General report did, but they do seem to indicate that a lot of these errors, a lot of these omissions were at least in part due to uh, political bias. This really does go hand in hand with what you've been saying since uh, I met you five years ago and and read your book six years ago. Um, Is there anything that surprised you about the Durham report, anything that was included that you were unaware of, anything that was not included that you expected to be in there? Yeah. Okay. So uh, first thing, uh, the two major distinctions between the Durham uh, conclusions and the IG Horowitz's conclusion is first IG Horowitz says that there was a basis and evidence to support opening up an investigation. Durham overtly refuted that premise where he said that there was absolutely no foundation, no evidence whatsoever, and that there should have never even been an investigation launched by the FBI. Uh, The second thing that uh, Horowitz said was that there was no political bias, like you just mentioned, that the FBI are just, you know, a bunch of uh, choir boys and, you know, that are not involved in, uh, you know, calling, basically that they just called balls and strikes and that they had no a bias whatsoever towards Clinton or or Trump, while Durham, on the other hand, found that there was a two-tiered system, uh, including, you know, how they vetted information, how they opened investigations, and how they, uh, you know, continued investigations into both the Clinton Foundation and the Trump campaign by using this uh, overt bias, which uh, obviously was was, uh, front-page news once the Peter Strzok and Lisa Page uh, text messages uh, when public and when Mueller testified, when Jim Jordan was asking him about it, about them saying we have to stop Trump. So these were two major uh, distinctions between the two reports. Now, 
regarding evidence that I was shocked was not added into the Durham report, which should have been, was about two individuals, Joseph Mifsud and Stefan Halper. Joseph Mifsud is this overseas professor from Malta that I was meeting in Rome and London, who, uh, according to Comey and Mueller, and even Durham, uh, was somehow involved in a conspiracy. Durham traveled to Italy with Barr, and that's how, uh, after they learned from the Italian government why this person was meeting with me, that's when Durham's probe actually became a criminal probe in nature in 2019. So when Durham didn't add him at all in the report, that was very suspicious. And hmm. the only conclusion I could draw for why he didn't add this person, being that he's the one that actually resulted in Durham's probe becoming criminal in nature, is that he's part of an ongoing criminal investigation that likely is targeting uh, individuals in the FBI. And the reason I say this is because while it wasn't covered properly in the mainstream media, about two months ago, Peter Strzok's boss, Charles McGonigal, was arrested at a New York airport on a series of federal charges, including foreign uh, influence peddling. This also wasn't mentioned in the Durham investigation or the Durham probe. So I think the reason you didn't see this stuff in his probe is because Durham knew one of two things. One, he couldn't win in a D.C. court. And two, if he did levy any recommendations for further prosecutions or added some of these other names who might or might not be part of ongoing investigations, he would lose credibility and uh, they would be tainted in the court of law based on how the liberal media attacked Durham. So uh, that's uh, what I'm uh, predicting moving forward. Uh, based on what's in the report and some of the uh, the the stuff that uh, that uh, Durham found here, what do you think? Because again, we're talking to an audience here. I don't think most people. I hope they do, but I don't think most people are going to read multi, multi over three hundred pages of this report. What do you think the greatest aspect of FBI misconduct was? I know there are many, uh, but if you had to pick one single greatest, most egregious aspect of FBI misconduct, what is it? The greatest aspect of FBI misconduct uh, during that saga was uh, certainly the fabrication of evidence uh, and uh, the entrapment schemes that went into uh, actually getting baseless uh, and unlawful surveillance warrants against uh, the Trump campaign and President Trump uh, that not only affected the 2016 campaign, but it also at the at the end of the day. And this is what I always say is that the American public are the ultimate victims here. And if they could do it to a Trump campaign or to a president of the United States, they could do it to anybody. And if they weren't held accountable in 2016, they could then do it again in 2020 and any potential future uh, elections moving forward. And that's exactly what happened when the CIA officials ended up writing this uh, fake letter to suppress a Hunter Biden story that likely tilted the last election in 2020 of the Biden. So this is the biggest issue. It's uh, how they were able to manipulate not only fake evidence, but then collude with the mainstream media to propagate this uh, this fake narrative to confuse the American people uh, and just to really, uh, you know, violate civil liberties. So I think that's the major conclusion of what Durham uh, showcased here is that the American people at the end of the day were the ultimate victims. Maybe you uh, can't know this, but I'm betting you have a hunch. Why do you think 
they went after you. It's easy to understand why they went after someone like Roger Stone. He's been associated with Trump and he was very well known for so many years. It's easy to understand why they went after someone like uh, uh, General Flynn, the national security advisor. It's easy to understand why they went after uh, President Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. Those were the top uh, level folks in the campaign or the most recognizable folks uh, in the campaign. Prior to your wife going on television and when you were in the midst of your thing, most people, myself included, didn't know who you were. So why would the Mueller people and the prosecutors and the FBI, why would they make you a target? What's to gain by going after you? Yeah, no, certainly. Uh, I I, uh, dis- I wasn't a public uh, figure during uh, my time on the Trump campaign, and I did that intentionally, even though they had asked me many times uh, to go on television and represent the campaign. I gave a couple interviews, including to the Times of London, and also, I was the only campaign official that gave an interview to Russian media about what Trump had uh, in mind regarding that potential relationship moving forward. But uh, what I think happened is, I, I first, I worked for Ben Carson's uh, presidential campaign first. Uh, and then I once he dropped out, then I joined Trump's campaign. So there was always this misunderstanding that I just kind of fell from, you know, the sky into Trump's lap. No, I had worked for, uh, pre- uh, for Ben Carson, obviously Ben Carson endorsed Trump. They ended up getting close, and that's how that ended up happening. Now, the reason I think I was um, a, a target was because I was based in London uh, during the first couple months I was on the Trump campaign, and that's why you had all of these shady characters, these uh, uh, foreign diplomats uh, who ended up being key figures in this entire scandal, uh, reaching out to me while I was in London or Rome, uh, spying on me, recording conversations, putting together fake evidence like the Durham probe uh, explained about this Australian diplomat who basically, uh, you know, I've always said that he was there spying on me. And I testified under oath uh, in front of Mark Meadows and John Radcliffe that this guy was a spy. I don't know what on earth he was doing meeting with me. And then later, the Durham probe says that this guy didn't even know what he was telling the FBI about me to help launch a fake investigation. So I think that's the primary reason is because being outside of America, it allowed these people to basically circumvent the U.S. Constitution. And I highly recommend your uh, your listeners look up what the Five Eyes Intelligence Agreement is. That's an agreement between the United States and five other and four other countries, including the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, that allows their diplomats or their intelligence services to spy on American citizens. Uh, unlawfully, uh, basically without the Constitution protecting them. So that's why I believe you saw a lot of U.K. action involved, Australia and uh, even Italy to some extent, uh, because this was a dirty trick that they had to use to to basically evade the law of the Constitution. You got to come back because we're just about out of time. I I do have to uh, ask you this, though, uh, George. Peggy Noonan had a column in The Wall Street Journal, and she's sort of a she's not a a Trump person at all by her by her own admission. But she points out that uh, she acknowledges all the findings of FBI wrongdoing with the Durham probe. And she asked the question that I think a lot of people that aren't crazy about Trump are asking. She says there's still unanswered questions about Trump and Putin. She says she has no reason to doubt the Durham report, but it's still curious that Trump treated Putin so gently. I've heard this from a lot of callers and others as well. Uh, Trump has no problem bashing other world leaders, other American politicians. They point out that uh, whether it's Helsinki or other otherwise, uh, Trump always seems to pull his punches when it comes 
to Putin. What would you tell someone like Peggy Noonan or someone that believes something similar to that, George? I would tell uh, Peggy Noonan, let's look at facts, because facts speak louder than words and innuendo and conspiracy theories. During the Trump administration, Putin did not invade a foreign country. Under, under George W. Bush, he invaded Georgia. Under President Obama, he invaded Ukraine the first time. During Trump, there was no invasion. And obviously, during Biden, we see this, uh, this uh, potential for, for World War III. That's the first issue. The second issue is that by making NATO pay their fair share, mm. it uh, emboldened NATO to uh, develop capabilities to deter any potential foreign aggression by any country, especially Russia, which obviously is designed to prevent. And third, and most importantly, because as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I am somebody who started off my career in the energy industry. That's what my added value was to these presidential campaigns and what I still do to this day. By unleashing the American energy renaissance in this incredible country we have and shipping American natural gas and oil to Europe and to other foreign governments and allies around the world, it allowed them to wean themselves off both Russian influence economically and politically while bringing them closer to America. This is not somebody who is a Russian stooge. This is somebody who just basically put America first, but by through his actions was able to deter Russia's aggression and checkmated Putin, unlike any president in modern George, American history. George, I, I so. appreciate the time uh, this morning. I'd love to talk a little bit more, maybe in the next week or two, about the political scene, what you're up to now, and where you see the country going in the next couple of years. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. George Papadopoulos, you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 